We're going to dive in, in, into the Bible today, and uh, if it's your first time with us this morning, we're just so thankful you're here. My name's TD, uh, my wife who is up here uh, encouraging us during our, our time of musical worship, uh, that's Callie. Uh, we are the pastors of this church, and we are just so excited that you're here, and we're going to use this time to, to jump in the scriptures, and I'm excited about this morning uh, because we're opening up our Bibles, and we've been in a series, um, this is our fourth week into the series titled Relationship or Religion. And uh, the subtitle of this series is Confronting the Chains of Legalism. And we've been talking about this idea of how do you summarize the Christian faith maybe in two to four words, right? I think it's really helpful when we don't complicate things. And one of the best simple definitions that I've ever heard in my life of the Christian faith is simply this, that Jesus wants relationship, not religion. And we've been talking about legalism, and we have a definition. I always love to start us off with this. Merriam-Webster defines legalism such as this, strict, literal, or excessive conformity to the law or to a religious or moral code. And for some of you in the room who have been around church people, you might say, that sounds, a lot, that sounds pretty familiar, right? Sometimes we get around church people, and we feel like it's a legalistic environment. So in this series, we're, we've been exploring the idea of how we truly get our conclusions about God. Where do maybe we get some of this legalistic or religious behavior from? And, and I would argue that it comes from the same Bible. That many people make all sorts of different conclusions. We all have the same Bible, but for some reason the practicalities that kind of ooze from that, the way people live oftentimes looks a lot different. Our approach looks different. And I just kind of want to give us, for those of you maybe who haven't been caught up with us or this is your first time, I want to get us kind of caught up uh, in this series. So I have, a, I have a, a kind of an introductory slide here that's going to kind of get us caught up from the past three weeks. And here's what I'm assuming. I'm assuming each and every one of us is an average Joe Bible reader. I consider myself an average Joe. I'm not a Bible scholar. Yes, I went to Bible college, but uh, your boy is not a theologian. You know what I'm saying? Um, uh, I, you know, I love to study. I love, but I, I'm not, I don't have a Ph.D., um, I'm an average Joe Bible reader who really wants the Bible to make sense. If, if, if the Word of God truly is making the claims that it is alive, active, how is it transforming me? So we, we started off this series in part one talking about a theology that's helpful. And the theology is this. We don't insert our own ideas into the text, our own ideas about what we think, how the Bible is according to America and all the assumptions that we have living in this nation. But we really just honestly start with the text. That's all we start off with. We begin with the text, and we go from there. We don't insert our own ideas into an ancient piece of literature, because that honestly would um, not be helpful, and we would make all sorts of different and incorrect conclusions, right? And then we talk the next week in part two about our approach. And here, here's, here's basically, I, I summarize it this. We need to play nice with unfamiliar ideas, because for some reason, there's something wrapped up in the Christian community that says, when you disagree, um, you need to be disrespectful. And it's been modeled to us, and it hasn't been help helpful. And there's a lot of new and modern ideas because of the benefit that we live in in 2018 who have helped us discover and identify new things in the Bible that maybe we see in a different way. So the whole idea is, rather than writing certain people off as heretics or the Antichrist, let's actually look like Jesus, play nice with new ideas, open our hearts and our minds to maybe a new or a different approach than what we're used to. And right now I'm kind of uh, uh, speaking to people that grew up in church. Because there's a lot of assumptions that you get, you get when you grow up in church. And then the, last week we talked in part three about filters. We, we started unraveling some of the assumptions that get in the way from us just starting with this. 
we started to unravel some assumptions and some really generalistic characteristics that people throw there, throw out there about God and his church, and we began to unravel those things in terms of how the Bible talks about it, right? So I would encourage you, if you missed out these past three weeks, go back. Uh, we're really, we're, we're building upon each week kind of this development of how we interpret the Bible and how do we truly get a clear picture of God. Man, if Jesus truly did in this point in history uh, conquer the grave, died, rose again, I want to be on the same page with that God. That's the assumption we're making this morning. So if the way we approach the Bible, it's like, I want to get on page. If he is truly Lord, I want to figure out a clear picture of who he is and how, as a human being, I can serve that God and his mission and how he sees and views the world. I love that last song we sang, Wonder, this morning. Man, can we jump in with the way that God sees the world? Sometimes we don't exactly reflect it because God loves the world that he created so much. And he loves each and every one of us. Amen? So our goals within this, here's what I've been kind of encouraging us church to do, is first, Bible engagement. If you haven't read the Bible, haven't picked it up, it's dusty on your shelf, pick it up. First time in a long time. Maybe you don't have a Bible. Okay, that's, that's okay. Go to our website. We have a little button on there called Devotions. You can click that. You can begin to engage in the Bible. Engage with it. Begin to read it. Read it with a new lens and a new approach. And then I've been encouraging us to get involved in small groups. We have small groups that are every trimester, and we got a plethora of different groups uh, over the next few months. So go to our website, once again, poncacitychurch.com. Click on the small group button, and let's, man, let's be in community with one another. We're not created to do life alone. That's why our vision for our church is family matters. We just were not created to do this thing alone. Amen? And then lastly, prayer is a big part of this. Man, we got to pray that the God who we're talking about, the God who reveals himself in the Bible, would actually be true in our lives. That maybe we grew up with this weird idea about God, but my prayer for us is we would pray to God and see himself reveal himself personally to each and every one of us, that he is the God who in fact is descriptive in this Bible as a God who loves and desires us so much. Amen. Amen. Two of us. Cool. Uh, we're going to be moving on. Here we go. We're in part four this morning. So we've talked about parts one through three. And we are in part four. And we're calling this chronological covenants. And before we kind of dive into it all, uh, I, I always want to remind us that uh, we're going to be doing something I'm so excited about called Conversation Sunday. Many times church is whatever the pastor says goes. But here's the deal. We need to transition the idea of church being a monologue to a conversation. Conversation. So throughout this series, man, we're talking about big ideas. If you grew up in church, we might be talking about ideas that challenge you a little bit, right? But we want to open it up, and we want people to ask questions. So you can grab your bulletin today, write on the back of the notes, drop off a, a question at the connection table or connect table, or you can uh, go to our website, and there's a little slot. If you go to events, you can fill out any anonymous question. Man, I, I, that first week I was like, I got one question, but my, my, my inbox has been filling up, and it is good. There's a lot of great questions. So once again, keep them coming because I need a way to listen. Can I just be honest? Once again, some of the things that we're going to address in our community of faith are going to be things that come from what needs to be talked about. And it comes through a conversation, not just me, our church staff in a vacuum, making random decisions about what God's doing. But man, we need to, man, what are the questions we're asking? Because sometimes we just assume that people, man, this is what people need to hear or need to talk about. So this is, this is going to be huge for us. We're going to dedicate a whole Sunday after the series is done, and we're going to go through some of these unanswered questions. We're going we're gonna to hash these things out. We're going to make it really conversational. Anybody excited about that? I'm, I'm super excited about that. So it's coming up. Look forward to that. Uh, but ask questions in the meantime. You got friends who want questions who won't come to church? Great. Have them ask questions. Invite them to this because we're going to get down with it. Come on. Uh, let's pray this morning before we keep going. Lord, uh, thank you so much for your power, your presence in this place. Thank you that you're a God who is not distant. But, Lord, you're, you choose to be right there with us in relationship. So be so real to us. 
for those of us who are maybe like, I don't feel like there's a God who loves me who wants relationship, Lord, would you just reveal yourself so strongly this morning to people that need it, God? Would you not be a distant idea, but would you come in the way that really you've described? And Lord, the way that we understand and, 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 and really connect with you, God, would that be so true and so real in this place this morning? In Jesus' name. And are we said? Amen. Okay, so we're going to start off with the first kind of word that we talked about in this idea of chronological covenants. With the first word that means chronology, biblical chronology. And here's what I'll just be honest with you right now. In the way when we pick up a Bible, you typically read a book from left to right, right? Well, unfortunately for us, we've received this Bible in a form uh, that were, was organized by some guys that are a lot older than us in terms of how the Bible was going to be organized. And unfortunately for us, it's not organized, read it from left to right. Rather, it's been organized in a different way. So we're going to talk about that. But the first thing I want to talk about before we start talking about, like, the order of the Bible and how that's going to help us, well, there's a couple terms that I think will be helpful. First is, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Bible is basically made up of two big chunks. The first one is called the Old Testament, or as we're going to refer to it, the OT. That's the first two-thirds, about two-thirds of the Bible. Then there's this next one-third of the Bible called the New Testament, which we're going to refer to many times as the NT. This is uh, the one that really does kind of more apply to us. It's the story of the early church. It's the story about the ministry of Jesus. If you're a person who considers yourself to be a Christian, that means that you are a little Christ or a follower of Jesus. So the New Testament, really, many times when you read it, it comes to life because you're like, oh, I see how this applies. But sometimes we get like bogged down by this thing called the Old Testament. So we just, we need to address it because things get really confusing even in terms of order. So let's, let, let's transition to, uh, let's continue on here. So the order organization that we've been giving the Bible, in most Bibles, unless it's like a chronological Bible, you go to the store, you buy it, you open it up, and this is the way that it's been given to us and organized for us. Four major categories. Here's the categories. And I'm just breaking it down really simply. Um, the first category is this, history. So we have the books of Genesis through Esther that gives us kind of a history of God's people and how God related to humanity um, in the early days of the creation of the world, right? We have all of that. Then we get to the next section. After the book of Esther, you get into the book of Job. And then we have poetic literature. We have books that are kind of within the category of literature that we would describe as poetry, right? Then we have the next one, which is a section called the major prophets. These are prophets who spoke to God's people on behalf of God. Major prophets because... There are a lot of pages, many pages, so we consider them major. And then we have these little itty-bitty prophets called the minor prophets that are small little, little books, right, that are at the very end. Well, as we're going to find out, unfortunately, when it comes to chronological order, this is an absolute mess. And for us who think very sequentially when we read stories, this can be very troublesome how and when we approach the Bible. Anybody else in the house, like, you've approached or read out of the Bible and you're just like, I just feel lost. Like, what's even happening here? But this is what we sometimes do. We get overwhelmed, and then we're like, ah, cherry pick a verse, boom. Uh, that, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to receive that verse, and it applies to me. I wouldn't encourage that. I would encourage as a responsibility of our own life, if God who is who he says he is, man, how do we approach the Bible? How do we digest God and see a clear picture of the God of the Bible and understanding him? Okay, so some of you might turn your brains off on this part. That's okay. Here's the big point I'm trying to illustrate in this next section is the Bible if we actually go through the order of the Bible and how it's laid out for us, this is where it gets really messy in terms of a timeline, in terms of history. If you're a history person, you'll probably be tracking with me a little bit in terms of some key points and some moments throughout uh, the Bible and, and the scripture. So I've got to get caught up on my notes here. Okay, so if you were to read the Bible from left to right, here's, here's how it's broken down, and, and we're going to 
We're going to see how it gets confusing. So Genesis to 2 Chronicles, from that point, the beginning of the Bible, all the way till you get to 2 Chronicles, it's great. Because it's all in somewhat chronological order. This is a history of the early days of the earth leading up to God's people, Israel, as he's related to humanity and led and promised this nation to be something great. But then the next book we get to is Ezra and Nehemiah. And this is a story of rebuilding of the temple after the Babylonian exile. Now, that first section there, that first bullet point, that takes us from the beginning of time. I'm not going to argue about dates this morning because Christians get all like ruffled feathers about dates and science and things. We're not going to go there this morning. We're going to go from the beginning to what we would understand to be 742 B.C. And then when we jump to Ezra, we understand there's about a 200-year gap of history that's like, what happened? Well, we actually do find out what happened, but once again, it's out of order. It's out of order. So um, we know there's a major event that happens in between those first two bullet points. In 586 B.C., there's a historical event, the destruction of Jerusalem and exile into Assyria and Babylon. God's people were exiled into Babylon. And this becomes this huge focal, focal point for throughout the Old Testament, that first two-thirds of the Bible. So as we're about to find out, that event actually is referred to and talked about and actually becomes a centerpiece. But for some reason, when we get to Ezra, it gets skipped over. And then we read through Ezra and Nehemiah because it's after, it's the rebuilding of the temple after this whole exile. Then we get to Esther and we realize that Esther is during the Babylonian captivity. Then we get to Job, if you're following the order of the Bible, which is really a lot of scholars would say that happens at the beginning, kind of in the time of Genesis at the beginning of the Bible. Are we getting the pattern here? We're kind of, you read it, you try to read it left to right and you just get lost. It's going all over the place, right? You have the Psalms next, which is a variety of authors and time periods, right? So that's scattered all throughout. That's really out of order. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. This happens during the time of 1 Kings, which is included in the first bullet point. Once again, we're like, pew, 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 chronologically. It's like, where am I? Okay, next slide. We're going to finish off the Old Testament here. Then you get to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, which is prophesying that destruction from which Ezra and Nehemiah were rebuilding. So that's pre-537 B.C. Then we get to the prophet Daniel during the end of exile and rebuilding of the temple around 537 B.C. And then we get to the only, like, next best chronological point. At the very end of the Old Testament, we have the minor prophets plus three that the, the Old Testament ends with, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, who are actually rightfully placed because it's talking about this better future after the temple has been rebuilt. And it paves the way for what we would call the 400 silent years that exist between the Old Testament, that first two-thirds of the Bible, and then the next one-third of the Bible, the New Testament, when Jesus shows up on the scene. But as you can see, without getting into all the nuts and bolts, and like I said, some of you might have just fallen asleep, wake up! Um, it's, it's all over the place. And this is the problem, right? Like, when we grow up in church, like, stories become a constellation. We're like, where does this fit in? Like, what, you know, Noah's Ark versus, you know, Moses and, and Egyptian slavery. Like, we just get all these stories, and, and we never really are taught to think sequentially or chronologically. And as we become adults and we become more mature or we approach the Bible, we're just like, this, I need help. This doesn't always make perfect sense. So what I would present to you is maybe a better way to think about this. This has really helped me. Um, they have chronological Bibles out there, and you could purchase them. But, I mean, once again, most of us have normal Bibles on our shelf that are kind of organized differently. Is to, to think about maybe books or, 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 or chunks, our four major categories differently to help us understand chronologically, right? So here's what I'm presenting for us this morning is that, yeah, the first part of the Bible, we have history. 
that's chronological, it's nice. Genesis to the book of 2 Chronicles. That handles a lot of history, a lot of a time period, a lot of uh, uh, just good stuff within there, and it, and it just functions chronologically. But then, let's reorder some stuff. Then in history, we have the pre-exile, before the Babylonian exile, right? And, and in there, we have Isaiah through Zephaniah. And then we have the book of Esther, which happens during the same time as the book of Ezekiel. So basically, when you read Esther, you understand that Ezekiel, those events are happening at the same time. Then we get to the return, right? We get to this whole thing of the exile, and then we have this return, and we have the prophets Daniel, and then we have Ezra and Nehemiah who are rebuilding the temple, right? So you had this massive exile. Now you're having the return. And then lastly, we have the post-return, which is Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. So those are prophets that are speaking to this future beyond the first two-thirds of the Bible, the Old Testament. Anybody tracking with me this morning? Are we still awake? Come on. Okay. Uh, and then we have those that I left out. And those are the poetic books. Those are hard to deal with because we just got to kind of sprinkle them in. You gotta, we're going to have to do our research a little bit. If I'm reading a psalm, if I'm reading a proverb, if I'm reading something that's poetic, we got to kind of make sure we know where maybe this fits into that larger timeline. And then we obviously have the book of Job, which a lot of people are kind of like d disagree about where it's placed kind of in the early days of the book of Genesis, right? But I, I, would, just, I would just say this is going to help us. This is going to help us understand the Bible sequentially and create a lens for us that's really, really helpful. But we're just talking about the Old Testament. So let's, let's move on to the New Testament, right? That last one-third of the Bible. What about it? What about its chronological organization? I'll say this. Not a lot of people get confused about the New Testament because all the events of that last one-third of the Bible happened within a 40-year time span. So there's, it's, kinda, it's a little bit easier for the reader to say, okay, Here's where the events were kind of happening, unfolding. It doesn't mean that it, it can be difficult, but many times we, we never get into squabbles. And many times where people cherry pick verses out of the Bible that they've never read before. How many of you guys know we live in a day and age? You can Google anything. And here's what we're getting to. We're getting to a, a day of information where anybody who maybe didn't grow up in church, anybody who has ideas or thoughts about God can Google anything they want and read parts about the Bible that pastor never talked about and have an idea about it. And have a presupposition about it, right? But this is why it's so, it's so big for us to be not only Christians, but thoughtful Christians. Whether you want to admit it or not, we live in a postmodern world. And our faith is going to have to look differently in terms of how we approach and relate to people. Does that change our faith? No. But how many of you guys know, the mission never changes, but the methods need to change generation to generation, right? Okay, so... New Testament, written about 40 years, and then the, the, that second part, the Old Testament, or that first part, really, that's written over a span of 4,000 years. That's why it gets really confusing, right? We're talking about the first two-thirds of the Bible, 4,000 years, and that's why we need a little bit of direction in terms of what does the history look like? How can we think sequentially? Does that make sense, everybody? Is everybody kind of grasping the idea of uh, chronology this morning, Bible chronology, for the most part? Yeah. Like three of us. Cool. That's great. I'm assuming many of you are thinking and the wheels are turning. Okay. Uh, great. Let's keep moving, okay? So this layer of, of chronology is going to really help us when we approach the Bible. But then we have to have this other conversation about this other bigger theme called biblical covenants. Many of you guys have heard the word covenant before because a covenant is basically an agreement between two parties that is legal and binding. The most common covenant that we would relate to today would be a marital, marital covenant, right? Two equal parties coming together. There's, it's contractual. We base it off of what would be called a kinship covenant, where there's two equal parties. The biblical marriage is a kinship covenant as displayed in the Bible. 
But we don't really ever go beyond that in understanding what is a covenant and what is it, how is it represented in the Bible. Well, it's this, this agreement between two parties that is legal and binding. Each covenant typically had a history of how the parties walked out this covenant together. This body of literature is called a canon. So in the Bible, if we're going to think chronologically, that's going to help us understand, like, history, beginning to finish, right? But then we also have to understand when we approach the Bible, there are different covenants that exist throughout. There is different bodies of literature that describe different moments throughout the Bible progressively as God related to humanity. So this next slide we're going to have up on the screen here is the five major covenants in chronological order that we see in the Bible. And their canons, right? Because there's different literature within the Bible that describes these different seasons and different covenants that God got into with this other party called us, humanity, right? So here we go. First one, the Noahic covenant, also Noah's covenant. The rainbow covenant, right? Many of us are familiar with Noah's Ark, right? This covenant that God made, I will never flood the earth ever again. The rainbow becomes a sign. That is the example of the first chronological covenant, how God reveals himself to be a God who says, hey, like, I'm never going to do this again, right? Then we keep moving on in the biblical text chronologically, and we get to the Abrahamic covenant, this covenant that God makes with Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you. I choose you. You're going to be a nation. That nation is going to multiply. I'm going to give you a land. You're going to be my people. I'm going to bless you. We see this amazing uh, revelation of how God is and how he relates himself to humanity through the promised selection of this man named Abraham, right? That's an example of the next covenant. Then we get into the third covenant, which is called the Mosaic Covenant, or the covenant that God made with Moses on behalf of God's people. This is referred to, this is key here, this is referred to many times as the Old Covenant, also known as the law, the law that God gives, gives these terms on which the way that God's going to create a society between God and his people. Different than the Abrahamic Covenant, unique on its own in how God is relating to his people, referred to as the Old Covenant. Then we get on, and we keep moving on, and we get to the Davidic covenant, a covenant that God makes with David, one of the greatest kings of Israel. And then lastly, fifth, we get into the greatest covenant, which is called the new covenant. Now, all the covenants that led up one through four were covenants that God made with humanity during a specific season. But I love it because the new covenant, the covenant because of what Jesus has done for us, is a covenant that God makes with the world, the entire world. But this is going to be helpful for us to understand, once again, and how we approach the scriptures. Even with proper sequence, we can miss a lot in the Old Testament, or the Bible as a whole, if we read it as one big storyline without understanding the differences within each covenant and canon. Let's, let's talk about something really quick. Let's talk about a really harsh phrase in the Bible that people will say, well, your God's insane. He's wrathful. Let's talk about this idea of wrath because some of us, I'll be real, some of us are people underneath this thing called the new covenant and we still relate to God's wrath in a way where we're like, God, don't strike down lightning. I made a mistake. But can we just talk about this? This is where it's going to become, start becoming a little bit helpful for under, under us to understand chronology and the covenants. In Exodus chapter 20, that's where the Mosaic Covenant happens. The Ten Commandments. Anybody familiar with this? The Ten Commandments? Yeah. Very big biblical theme that we talk about, all these different things, right? At this moment, um, we don't know in the biblical narrative up to this point what actually makes God wrathful. He never describes something that would make him wrathful. 
But in Exodus 20, two chapters after the law happens, we find out between this contractual agreement what actually makes God wrathful. Let's look at this. We're looking at it in the New King, King James Version. It says this, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. This is God speaking. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. So at this point in the narrative, here's what we understand what makes God wrathful. Do not mess with the orphans and the widows. Do not mess with those who can't defend for themselves. You want to stir up God's wrath up to this point in the biblical narrative? Now we have found out what does that. But let's zoom out a little bit more into the New Testament, into the category of kind of what applies to us today in Romans chapter 4. This all starts making sense when we start to understand the Bible chronologically. The Apostle Paul, he's writing to the Roman church in chapter 4, and he says, It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world. Pause. We're talking about a covenant, Abraham's covenant, differentiating between the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, the law. Paul differentiates those things. He says, but through the righteousness that comes by faith, faith, God wants us to respond by faith, Paul argues. Then he says this, for if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. Makes very much sense when we understand two chapters after the law is given to God's people, wrath becomes a big theme. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. These covenants are not all interconnected. These five that we talked about that exist throughout the Bible, they're separate. In their canons, the body of literature are separate. Stories of God's relationships with people during different times and places. This is key to our interpretation and the conclusions we get about God. And for some of us, we mix and match, and things have gotten kind of fuzzy. So let's, let's make it clearer. Let's approach the Bible with, with, with pristine clarity this morning, right? Reading the Bible from the perspective of the covenants and their canons completely changes our perspective. Let's bring that yeah, back up again. Here's the five major covenants once again. So the Noahic covenant, Noah's covenant with God. Instead of starting in Genesis 1 and reading it as a simple story, we realize that Genesis 1 and the following chapters are a part of the canon telling the history leading up to God's covenant with Noah. It's giving the context for how the world became so evil and why the flood, this biblical flood that many of us are familiar with, um, became necessary. Then we get to Abraham, right? Or Abram, his name changes. Israel did not yet exist, and people at that time knew almost nothing about God, right? Abram grew up as an idol worshiper like his neighbors, yet God called him out and began a relationship with him. The unfolding story is the canon surrounding that covenant. Moses, big hero in the faith, the old covenant. Israelites are in slavery in Egypt. God called them out and created a completely new covenant with that nation involving a precise system of worship and law abiding. All of the rules and the history of the nation of Israel are a part of the canon of this covenant. Then we get to David. We continue chronologically moving along the biblical narrative. Many years after that, David came on the scene and wanted to build a house for God. God told him he does not dwell in human houses, but he said he would give David a house by establishing a covenant with him related to his family line. And lastly, we get to the new covenant. 
Jesus came, he established a new covenant through his death and resurrection. There's a problem. The problem is we as people who relate to God by what we are calling a new covenant, we try to apply ourselves to all sorts of aspects of a covenant that was not written to us. This becomes very, very problematic with our faith. Do you know the book of Job, early, 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 has nothing to do with our covenant and our canon. And we cannot read it as though it was written for us. Yes, we can learn from it. But we are living in the new covenant with different circumstances and a different relationship with God. Let me give you a biblical example of how Paul, the Apostle Paul, um, describing a lot of what Jesus meant in letters to the early church. So let's look at 1 Corinthians because this is going to help us. And this is the context of this whole section is basically Paul's talking about Israel's history. You might be saying this morning, Pastor T.D., then what do we do? What do we do with the Old Testament? What do we do with the Old Covenant? What do we do with all these other covenants, right? We're going we're gonna to continue in this series and really kind of unpack some of this stuff. But here's kind of the big idea. He's talking about Israel's history, and this is how Paul refers to it and how our approach should be. He says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Then he goes on a few verses later, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. We live in a different day and age. For those of us who have read the Bible, we're waiting for a day when Jesus comes back, the culmination of the ages. In the meantime, how do we refer back to the, well, Paul tells us, examples. Let these stories and these experiences of God's faithfulness and how he related to humanity be examples. But it's a mistake for us to begin to cherry pick and apply specific things that were designed for a specific type of people in a specific time place automatically to us today. And this is why in the church we've had all sorts of weird and false tensions. Well, what about tattoos? Well, can you get tattoos? There's some pretty harsh verses about tattoos in the Old Testament. Am I allowed to eat pork or not? If you eat bacon, you broke the law if you're following it. Can I just say that? If you're a bacon eater and if you're going to be consistent, you've broken God's law in the Old Testament. What do you do with that? Or maybe we be consistent and we understand there was a specific set of laws for a specific set of people during a specific time, and we live under a different covenant. Let's talk about this. We need to understand the differences between the covenants and which ones apply to us today. We've got to talk about this. We've got to figure this out. This is sometimes complicated by the fact that some of the promises of the older, older covenants are fulfilled in the new covenant. Some of those covenants are fulfilled in what Jesus did. I'm, I'm kind of zooming ahead a little, or I'm going ahead in what we're going to be going over next in this series. But the Abrahamic covenant, the one that God gave to Abraham, the new covenant fulfills that. God takes a certain amount of people and uses it to bless through what Jesus did so that it's an application to the whole earth. God is building a family on this earth, an eternal family. But we can't. we got to be careful in understanding how the covenants relate to us 
today, right? And here's what I'll say. Here's our, here's our conclusion this morning. The best lens of interpreting the Bible is through the chronological covenants. The best lens. The Bible is going to become a lot more clearer when you understand the Bible sequentially and you understand the way that God relates to humanity. Here's how he relates to humanity. Here's how he's revealed himself. God acts in accordance with the covenant he is in. That is how God acts. And when we begin to apply different covenants from different places, things start to get really confusing and complicated. And the promises of God begin to get really diluted on the character of who God is and who this Bible says that he is. But as Christians, we've been mixing and matching for too long. We've got to stop mixing and matching the faith that applied to a different people group at a time that looks completely different than ours. Let's talk about this new covenant briefly. We're going we're gonna to talk about it deeper in the future of this series, but let's just briefly address some religion this morning. Can we do that? Here's Hebrews. Man, if we preach on Hebrews, you know what I, what I truly believe? If we preach on Hebrews about it, what it says about some of these old covenants, and for us to have our foot in one and not in the other, man, we would, many modern people would maybe be considered antichrists or heretics themselves. Well, let's not erase it from the Bible. Let's read what Hebrews has to say in chapter 8, verse, starting with verse 6. But in fact, the author of Hebrews writes, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on what? Better promises. Verse 7, for if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, speaking of the law, speaking of the old covenant, the covenant that God made with Moses, the one with 613 laws for the people of God to follow, no place would have been sought for another. If that did it, if that was great, there's no point. But God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Here's what we realize the people of God do with 613 laws. They're humans and they make mistakes. And they're having trouble following it. Was it impossible? No, it wasn't impossible. Paul actually, the Apostle Paul who used to be Jewish, who goes on to write letters, says that actually he was able to do it. But here's what we understand. Is that time and time again, people were not able to fulfill this law that God had created. It was temporary. Verse 9, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord. Because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Let's, let's unpack our faith for a second. You place your faith in Jesus. Jesus gives you relationship. The Holy Spirit comes within you, the Bible says. Meaning that you and God have a connection, a deep connection, simply because of what Jesus has done. We aren't an army that destroys other armies and say, hey, get on board. Know this God because this God's on our side. We're Israel. No. We tell people about Jesus People place their faith in this God, and guess what happens? Jesus has communion and relationship with people. Verse 12, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Sounds a lot like Jesus. Verse 13, 
by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. Obsolete. It's, it's time to choose whether we erase this or not. It's time to choose whether we continue to have one foot in religious behavior, one foot into legalism, or we jump out of the obsolete into the new. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. History's on our side. You know what will soon disappear means? Year 80, the Roman army sieges Jerusalem, destroys the temple. What do I mean by that? Jewish history never was the same. History shows us in the year 80, 70, 70, the temple was absolutely obliterated. Ancient Judaism does not exist anymore. We have new forms of it called rabbinic Judaism. But how many of you guys know ancient Judaism doesn't exist anymore? Because it got obliterated as Jesus prophesied through the author of Hebrews. There's a point in history that gives this the proof that it already happened. So this is going away. Going away to a level that we didn't even understand. But we see that the temple in ancient Judaism gets obliterated. Annihilated. Because Jesus said it would become obsolete. Mixing old covenant, old law dilutes the new. Read the letter to the Galatian church. Paul is writing and he's that's all he's talking about. Read the book of Romans. He's constantly addressing, mixing these covenants and how dangerous it is for a person who lives under the grace and the power of Jesus today. Read Hebrews in its entirety. And this is the main topic that's being addressed. Don't mix these things together because it's going to be very unhelpful and it's going to be dangerous in terms of the witness of Jesus and how he thinks about the world and what he's done. There was a temporary covenant. 613 laws that described a lot of blessing when you followed them, but also described a lot of curses when you didn't. For some of us, we live with a lot of vertical morality when we approach God. Well, well, when, when I'm good, when I'm doing good with God, God's good with me. Can I invite you into a new reality called the new covenant? Not blessings and curses, but blessings upon blessings. Come on, church, we got to grasp this, because this, this affects everything. 613 laws, Jesus summarizes down to two when someone asks him specifically, right? Love God, love people, and then he condenses it later down to one. John 13, 34, a new command I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Well, that seems kind of loosey-goosey. We live in a day and age where love just means so many different things to so many different people. You know what happens a few chapters later? Love becomes the example. When Jesus gets crucified on the cross, you want love to find? Nails on the cross. Death for people that didn't deserve it. Brutality. Every reason to fight back. But love gets displayed. A certain type of love that looks nothing like the love that the world wants to offer. 
that looks nothing like our human capacity to grab and understand and relate to other human beings with love. Jesus defined that one law, and it becomes one that becomes extremely difficult to do without him in our lives. 613 down to one. One that when you say yes to it, come on, blessings upon blessings upon blessings upon blessings. We, we aren't promised a perfect life, but at just the right moment, the things that happen in this world that happen for our harm, come on. When we place our trust and faith in God, when we place that faith, when he requires that faith, we begin to see God spin circumstances around that were horrible into our benefit for not only ourselves, but for others to get in on this game. 613 blessings and curses replaced with one. No wonder the disciples in the upper room They've thought about their history. They sit down and Jesus prepares communion, right? The wine, the bread. And these guys have always interpreted through their history. They've always said, well, that represents the Passover, right? When God was faithful and he got us out of slavery in Egypt, if you're familiar with the story. And Jesus sits and says, uh, that's great with your history, but I'm re redefining it. Do this in remembrance of me. The body broken, that's what you're supposed to be doing for others. Let your bodies break for the sake of other people. This blood, this is a universal blood. Not just for a people at a certain time, certain place. Not just for these Old Testament people of God. This is a blood that's universal for everyone. For the entire world. Redefines what is temporary. The history, let's honor it. Let's use it as an example, but we today live under the blessing of a new covenant, and it's not based on what we've done. It's simply based on what Jesus has done, and all it requires is your faith. And when you trust him and you continue to exercise faith, he's going to reveal himself time and time again in a beautiful relationship with you throughout this day until the day you breathe no more and then we get to move into a new reality of how God truly does see the world where there is no more suffering, no more pain, no more hardship. With a new lens, this starts to make a lot more sense. With a new understanding, with an openness into our heart, the way that maybe we've diluted, the way that we've mixed we got to unmix it. We got to get clear. And I'm so excited because over the next few weeks, we're going to look at this. We're going to break this down. You might not be convinced this morning, but we're going to unpack a little bit of these covenants in this history. And my prayer is that God would make himself clearer and clearer to you. Let's look up on the screen. Legalism. Strict, literal, or excessive conformity to the law or to a religious or moral code. There's a better way. There's a better way, followers of Jesus. Jesus wants relationship, not religion. He wants relationship. 
religion? Would the chains of religion fall to the floor as maybe some of us this morning make a decision to place our faith in relationship with the God who loves us, who sees us, who wants an abundant life? Would we leave the things behind that maybe we've married to that have caused a lot of pain, hurt, probably in our lives and in others' lives? God wants to provide healing for those areas. He meets us right where we're at. He meets us right in the middle of some legalism that maybe has been really unhelpful. It's maybe been modeled to you in a way that doesn't necessarily line up with God's heart and how he sees a solution to this problem called sin that exists in humanity. The world's not ought as it should be, but God set a plan into motion through his son Jesus to begin restoring the world back together. And there's eternal promises to come, but in the meantime, he invites us. He says, come along with me on this journey as we have the honor to love this world the way that I've chosen to love you.